Every single aspect of how we live as human beings on this planet will change. We're faced with the rapid emergence of new competition, business model disruption, consumers who are more empowered than ever before, the impact of fast-paced technology. Voice technology has changed the way we live our lives. We are in the midst of massive transformation. By the year 2020, 50% of all searches carried out will be voice searches. Bitcoin will grow a hundredfold in the coming decade. Blockchain technology will completely revolutionize the banking industry. In 10 years, 40% of the Fortune 500s will not exist in a meaningful way. You're talking about substantial World War III fucking dynamics. We are going to witness more change in the next 10 years than we have even seen in the last 100 years. The Internet of Things is not just a concept, it's a huge world change. This is going to dramatically, intimately affect every single person in the world in the coming years. We live in the era of acceleration. Driverless technology is completely changing the game. I'm probably going to terrify you with the speed and the scope of the change that is unfolding. With the self-driving car technology, people will live longer. The end of the auto industry as we now know it. You are experiencing history's highest rate of change. 3D printing has revolutionized the way we make stuff. It'll redefine the way we think about innovation, design, manufacturing, distribution, everything about buying and selling tangible goods from here to Mars. Ultimately, I think uh, 3D printing is going to lead to change in almost every industry that we see. Science fiction has now become science fact. We believe that VR is going to be in everything. We are experiencing a new way of life. You might even say a new way of being human. AI is probably the single biggest item in the near term that's likely to affect uh, humanity. Basically, in 10 years, technology will be infinitely powerful. The machines will actually be challenging your very existentialistic nature in a blink of an eye. Humanity will change more in the next 20 years than the previous 300 years. Hundreds of billions of microchips connected. Moving at speeds that are 100,000 times as fast as we think, and it will be digesting information and data a million times more than we can. It's probably going to happen faster than we think. Some people say 50 years. Some say 30 years. Some say five years. I say it already has surpassed us. It's going to happen faster than we think. Now, this video we just watched, everyone, is a compilation created by Tom Goodwin, who's my uh, guest today. And I have loved following this guy on LinkedIn because he brings a level of uh, rationality, uh, a wake up, wake up call, reality check to some of the overblown predictions that we're hearing coming out of big tech. Tom Goodwin is a uh, an author, a keynote speaker, a, uh, a presenter. Uh, he's uh, quite prolific on LinkedIn. He's, and as I said, he's one of the only voices that I, I think he's actually saying, hey, yes, tech is great and these are things that can do, but also let's just keep uh, a perspective of who we are as humans, these these beings walking around in meat, meat suits, you know. We're, <laughs> I've got a Tom, I've got to show people this picture you put up the other day, okay? This is the mall picture of the hours. <laughs> QR code to see the mall hours. Anyway, I think this sums I think this sums up exactly what this discussion is going to be about. Thank you for joining us, Tom. 
Thank you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's therapy to me. <laughs> so you go around uh, speaking on on what tech? You share the stages with these TED type people. Um, I try to understand what matters. Um, you know, we're in this age where everyone is going around um, because they make more money getting people paranoid. They make more money suggesting that people are missing a trick. Um, I know enough about technology. I've worked in technology for long enough. Um, but I also try to understand people. Um, and I go to events and I speak to companies to try to get them to understand what is changing that matters, what is changing that doesn't matter, uh, what is the same and that people are missing out on. Uh, and it's a very fun thing to do. It's a very sort of human-centric, uh, a.k.a. common sense approach to stuff. But as we saw in this this compilation you put out, a lot of the speaking gigs that I attend to watch, uh, they are talking these highfalutin 50% of all searches will be by <laughs> voice by 2020. And I love Gary. You're a legend. But, you know, some of the stuff, he said that kind of stuff as well. So what's going I think, on? I mean, broadly speaking, you know, no one gets famous saying that things are complicated uh, and nuanced. No one gets a headline saying, you know, climate change is going to be pretty bad, uh, but not as bad as other people say. Uh, no one gets funding for saying, you know, things are interesting and complex and uh, and let me help sort of navigate the subtleties. Like we, we sort of live in an age where you get famous by being more outlandish. And, um, you know, I, I put together that video in a sort of warm-spirited way, mm. uh, which was hopefully not mocking people, but it was mm. just pointing to the fact that we're kind of in this endless um, battle game to get more attention. You know, if you are a writer or a speaker, uh, notoriety is only good for your income. And it's just got so outlandish and so unhelpful that futurism and digital transformation is becoming an area which is so removed from reality that it's embarrassing. And I now have clients that are asking me to spend time and energy doing things which are a complete waste of time. Um, you know, there, there are so many banks that you go into today and they don't have enough stuff and they mm -hmm. don't have opening hours printed well because no one can find a, a printer to, to change the opening hours properly. Um, they will have staff that are not very well trained, that are unhappy. And someone will come along to them and say, you know what? You know, people are unhappy. Let's open a branch in the metaverse. Um, you know, let's come up with a new Apple Watch app where you can pay people with your Apple Watch. And uh, I've got quite irritated. You know, enough is enough. Like, let's focus on customers, focus on basics. Let's get really excited about technology that we've had for a while that does amazing things. You know, Excel spreadsheets, macros, cloud computing. Uh, shared databases, collaborative software, 4G. I mean, 4G was life-changing. 5G has done nothing to my life whatsoever, apart from okay. allowing me to get more stressed about whether the phone call will be dropped or not. Um, and, and people sort of misunderstand my approach as being curmudgeonly. You know, mm. they think that perhaps I don't know enough about 5G. I know loads about 5G. I spent three years traveling the world far away looking into what 5G would mean. And in that entire time, no one was ever able to come up with a use case that wasn't already paraded as a use case for both 3G and 4G. Um, and I think it's that level of discernment and confidence that people find provocative, but it's just common sense. So with the 5G thing, is that because it's more of an evolution than a revolution? And is that what we're seeing people representing evolutionary things as the next big thing? You know, Apple do this all the time, but it's not. 
Um, I'm not sure what's going on, and I don't know the intentions behind it. Um, so I may be wrong. Um, my, my slight sense is that um, in the age where we have so much information and where um, everybody needs things that get attention, um, being more outlandish is helpful to everybody. Um, so if you are working in the corporate PR department for a car maker, you know, it's great to talk about artificial intelligence, you know, using retina scans to predict your mood, you know, to adjust the driving, uh, you know, the suspension on the car based on how you're feeling that day. Like that's a much more exciting press release than saying, you know, we've trained our dealerships, you know, so they actually know what they're talking about. Um, and it suits the editors of newspapers to have journalists that are writing articles about exciting new things. Um, so I understand why it happens and there's no pointing of blame. There's just a pointing of uh, the reality that we work in. And that's that people are complicit in a sort of paradigm um, where we are desperately trying to get noticed. We're desperately trying to sort of compete for attention. Uh, and therefore doing what I do is quite difficult because uh, you don't get noticed so much. Yeah, how have you found the reception to, I imagine you're a dying breed where you want to talk about substantive, <laughs> you know, you said yeah. it's easier to uh, repaint a building than to renovate a building, that kind of thing. People just want to get the quick slap. We're going into the metaverse. We're creating an NFT for our bank. Yeah, uh, yeah so how have you found the reception? Is there any hope that people will return to the sub substantive kind of basic jobs? I'm not sure. The... I don't know. It's early days. Um, I have two great advantages. Um, and this has been being very honest, uh, I'm at the right age, uh, so I'm 43. Uh, that means that I am old enough to understand the world before the internet yes. and sort of, you know, wise enough to know that I don't really understand stuff, but wise enough to kind of get a bit of a, a grasp on people and politics and, and so forth. Um, so I'm able to sort of span the world before, but I'm also sort of young enough that I don't worry that there's something I'm missing out on. You know, I read into, you know, the dynamics of Web3 or I read into the um, underlying protocols of various different platforms. And I don't understand everything, but I know enough to sort of smell bullshit. Um, and because I have sort of grown up in this age, I have more confidence in my opinions than many other people would have. Because for a very long time, um, if you read about a technology and everyone seemed to be excited by it and you weren't, you just presumed that you were wrong. You know, for a long time, yes. if everyone's talking about virtual reality uh, and you think it's a bit shit, um, you know, you look at your sort of 23 year old son or your nephew and you sort of presume that they must be right and that you're wrong because you're old. Um, so I'm just the right kind of age. Um, and the other thing is I'm English, which means I have a, an accent that people find hmm. um, to be compelling. Not so much in Australia, actually, but in the US, people just give you a level of, of sort of gravitas and uh, it, it lets you behave in a more confident way. Um, and I'm not right on everything, um, but I've got a pretty good track record of, of, of not being wrong. Well, why don't we uh, workshop a, a bit of a selfish question? Because <laughs> as a media studio, we're trying to do the exact yeah. same thing. And our competitors, if yes. you will, they are, you know, we've got people on the left, the mainstream media, whatever, and they've got people on the right uh, of politics doing the exact same thing, trying to get clickbait, salacious, crazy headlines. Uh, yeah. And we're trying to thread the needle down the middle like you are. But naturally, the algorithms are against us. Everything is 
is geared for ma- attention maximization and for outrage. Yes. So what is our strategy, Tom? How are we going <laughs> to, and are we even going to find our way? I mean, there's plenty of people who yeah. want what we're doing, providing a yeah. reasonable um, conversation around our areas of expertise. Um, do you think it's a matter of just waiting for this moment to pass over the next five years or what are we going to do? That's a very good question. Um, I mean, first and foremost, you understand the situation um, and that puts you ahead of most people because I I don't think people really realize that algorithms are basically, they create like a sort of threshold, you know, so everything that's in the middle um, has to go to one side or the other. Um, Like literally algorithms do not allow you to sort of, um, you know, bifurcate and and switch between the two. You, you're either you know right wing or left wing. You're either sort of rich and exploitative or poor or desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're designed to make life simple. They're designed to keep us entrenched. They're designed to reinforce our opinion and then even take us further away because that's how software engineers have designed them. So you understand that. Uh, the second thing probably is to manage your expectations. Um, you are broadly speaking sort of intellectually correct and commercially correct. Um, but that doesn't mean it's easy to make money. Um, the wonderful thing is the more that we now escape our houses and the more that we remove ourselves from social media and go back into the world in this sort of post-pandemic age, uh, the more you quite quickly realise that people are great. Um, people, when you talk to them, um, are quite sensible. Um, people, when you listen to them, have really good perspectives on the stuff. People are quite able to articulate how they really feel. Like the more we get into reality, the more we realize that most people are a little bit self-serving and not stupid and a little bit scared. Um, And therefore everything they do can be understood within a framework, which is not that these people are assholes or stupid or racist or intolerant, but they're doing the best they can. Um, And I live in hope that as time goes on, that people that are putting out sort of reasonable and nuanced and informed and tolerant conversations like you are um, will benefit from, uh, you know, to call it an age of enlightenment is probably a little bit uh, pretentious, but uh, uh, perhaps sort of um, cater for the reaction to this movement, because I would hope that people get tired of hating other people and people get bored of hanging around people that just say the same things they do. Yes, I, I, I worry though. You're from Miami, Florida, is that right? At the moment, uh, I, I'm here. I'm not sort of from here. I'm not from uh, here. I love living here. Yeah. yeah. So I find it interesting that Miami is taking on a lot of the the tech. Some of the tech people are fleeing to to Florida, uh, mm-hmm. and just the the context within which you find yourself in in the USA. I'm scared that Australia and England will go into that that hardcore binary either way because you see the success of um, uh, people like uh, Ben Shapiro and Daily Wire having incredible success, uh, but certainly mm. there is there is a, a a bit of an echo chamber sense to that to it, and uh, and I, I quite like their work, but you know it seems like success has to be found in the US by going hard either either side. Um, do you? St- see any similarities in terms of England, Canada, and, and Australia, the Commonwealth countries, following uh, the USA, not just, terms of, not just in terms of culture and politics and what I've been saying, but in terms of your world in tech and business and, and corporate and strategy. Is there any links between us following the US? Hmm. 
I mean, I think it's likely. Um, I think so much of the dynamics of the media uh, are kind of uh, either irrelevant or agnostic to national boundaries. Um, you know, people's media behavior tends to mean that they focus on things that affect that country the most. But most relatively informed Americans will be aware of Angela Merkel and Boris Johnson, and, um, you know, Trudeau and, and other sort of changes. Um, so I think all of these conversations are quite global. I think um, mm -hmm. there is something, this is a sort of clumsy generalization, but I think there is something a bit more reasonable about um, many of the Commonwealth countries, probably because of the history. And I, I know obviously Australia is not a, a sort of new country, but, but there is something about living in a place where roads are not so prevalent that means you get on public transport and you see other people from different walks of life. Um, there is something unique about America, which is you basically live in two different countries at the same time. Um, you can live in a building where you have valet parking and you drive to your Whole Foods and you get your deliveries done on Amazon and you never need to know that another world exists. And if there are horrible things happening, you can ignore them because they're probably not going to affect you. Um, I don't think in Brisbane or the Gold Coast or Sydney or Melbourne or Toronto or Vancouver, you can. I don't think you can operate in quite the same level of um, removal from how other people are faring, um, whether it's how the sort of urban grain of the city is developed, whether it's the um, costs of, of gasoline or petrol. Um, there's not the same level of ignorance. And I think the more you understand people, the more compassionate you are. Um, you know, you always see that the movements towards, you know, stopping immigration always come from areas where they have the fewest immigrants. Um, so I, I think there's, there's more friction with people in Commonwealth countries uh, sort of falling down the hill. Um, but it is, it is happening. And um, I, know, I hope that we have a bit of a reckoning soon. I hope that people recognize that this is a really big problem. Um, I, I wrote a piece about maybe three years ago saying genuinely the biggest problem facing humanity by a long way is the way that we consume media and the way that the incentives within the media environment are aligned to create hatred and distrust. Um, and everyone sort of criticized me saying, oh, Tom, you know, this is nonsense. You know, there are people dying, um, you know, education's awful, um, you know, global climate change is gonna kill everybody. And I, but I maintain this is by far the most important thing and no one's really talking about it. Hmm. Okay. I think it's interesting that you raised uh, the car centric vehicle centric culture in the United States. I've seen, um, I've, I've been there briefly, but I've seen some places where you literally can't even cross the road because you've got a 10 lane crazy highway or doing 55 miles an hour. And you literally have to drive from the Walmart across the road to the McDonald's or whatever it is. Uh, very car centric. Yeah. But can I just point out, can we talk about technology adoption? Because I'm yeah. wondering just when you was talking about the car centric culture, which we all know about, isn't that simply a result of a very, very, very successful technology adoption? The car comes out in the United States, everything about it, the marketing, the culture, the, the uh, manufacturing um, behemoth that they created in, in Detroit. And this technology probably succeeds too much. And now we have this lopsided world in, in the United States. So I'm wondering if technology can be adopted too quickly and too successfully that our humanity can't keep up. 
Uh, completely uh, agree. Um, it's an article I've been meaning to write for a long time, actually. Um, you know, technology basically creates paradigms, um, mm. and everything works around that technology to make sense, and everything fits together. So, if you imagine the sort of paradigm of um, you know the medieval ages, where we walked everywhere on foot. Um, you know, cities would be very small, marketplaces would form at the center of town so people could trade goods, um, towns would get bigger and bigger, and then some would emerge to be cities. Um, and then the paradigm of, of things like railways and things like canals and things like the horse and carriage sort of changed that a little bit. But the main other paradigm was, was uh, the car. And that's why if you go and walk around Boston and the city center, because the city was mainly constructed before the car, um, it's completely different to everyone on the West Coast. Like everyone on the West Coast, planning rules are different. Um, taxation rules are different. The entire paradigm of the West of America and Miami um, was constructed in the age of the car. And therefore, the sort of atomic unit of society um, is the car park. Um, the lines between districts are roads that mean that people don't move from one area to another. Mm. And it's completely... Um, What's the word? It's completely sort of systematically and fundamentally change, uh, created cities that are different. Like it means that people don't move from one area to the other. It means that poor people um, can only afford to build in some areas because planning permission doesn't allow them to build small homes. Um, it, the whole sort of system of uh, real estate taxes means that you get very bad schools and very amazing schools um, and never will they sort of meet um, you know, the entire system of fast food is constructed for a very efficient country that was built on a sense of being in a hurry and time being money. Uh, the interstate travel system um, means that uh, it's extremely impossible for anyone of certain socioeconomic classes to, to move around very easily. Um, and it raises a very interesting question for me, which is, you know, what do you do about it? Because if you go to a place like LA, where they've spent a lot of money building um, a sort of subway system, you know, to get dropped off in a subway system in, I'm forgetting the name of uh, various uh, suburbs, in Bondi or in Parramatta, you know, you can get out of the station in Parramatta and uh, walk around and there's a few yes. nice pubs and yeah. it's not the greatest place on earth, um, but <laughs> you can walk mm. around and you can get yeah. some toothpaste and you can, um, yeah. you know, find like a hair salon or something or whatever you need to do. Uh, if you get off at some random train station in LA, um, you're basically in a big car park and to go anywhere from that um, is a long, is a lot of hassle when it's weird and it doesn't feel very good. Um, so effectively, the only way you can really create um, a better future is to almost start again. Um, you can't really re-engineer a city built around cars that easily um, because everything has been designed around that. Yeah, there's a really good, uh, I can't remember the name of the Facebook page, but some uh, transportation psychologist or something where people reimagine mm reimagine uh, cityscapes streets and designs and they measure throughput being very similar but the livability of it and, and so on yes but in terms of um <clears throat> this what you're saying well the the paradigm um of technology say with a car and then everything else is built around that is that a similar thing a lot of your posts are about tech doing that kind of thing people go about 5g or or the metaverse or whatever and then everything becomes about that we've got to get the paradigm through that's the primacy that's the prime goal and then everything else needs to adapt to it 
So what what would you do? You just said you'd have to re-engineer a city, which is difficult, uh, like in the West Coast. How would you do it in the tech world? How do we get them off this para- uh, tech paradigm centralized kind of cultish devotion to the newest tech? How can you change the landscape of tech to be uh, to reverse that trend? I think, um, I mean, first and foremost, and this is quite contrary to what other people say, um, we are in the really early stages of all this stuff. Um, you know, we haven't grown up with the internet, really. Like, we don't know how much screen time is a good thing. Uh, we don't know whether it's good to, you know, what age should you give a kid a smartphone to? We have no idea. <laughs> we have literally no idea. We're figuring it all out. And I think um, what's happened so far is we've embraced technology so quickly um, because it's amazing. Um, and by technology, I mean sort of digital technology. Um, and we've never really questioned why or how or what the role is. We've just sort of gorged on it. You know, every new thing, yes. Um, do you want some of this? Yes. You know, how about this map? Yes. You know, more. Um, you know, what if it moves? Great. You know, we've sort of taken to it like a sort of drug addict. Yes. Um, very good. And that, that's great. That, I mean, that's, that's understandable. It's forgivable. It's um, logical. Um, and... And this is where I have to be a little bit careful. Um, I, I think the people in control of this movement have largely been technology-wired people. And there is something amazing about the brains of people that write software. And it's an approach based on sort of binary um, fundamentals. And it's an approach based on um, the notion of right or wrong, um, the notion of logic. And the sort of this new era has largely been championed by people who had the power and had the understanding of technology. And unfortunately, generally speaking, those most likely to understand the sort of cold logic of software are probably not the most able to understand the weirdness and the mysteriousness and the sort of magic of humanity. And therefore, so far, we've kind of had like a a sort of generation of people who have, with good intentions, um, perhaps misled us into a less than perfect world where perhaps human emotions and human foibles are being exaggerated in ways because it's easier to make money that way. And I think probably what needs to happen is we start to have a much more empathetic approach towards technology. Um, it's amazing to me, you know, if you ever watch movies these days about the future, they're almost all dystopian. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you watch movies about the, the future in the 60s and 70s, um, the future was supposed to be this amazing place where, you know, flying cars would mean that we could have really close relationships with people. You know, video calling would mean that we'd be very empathetic and understanding of each other. You know, if someone explained to, you know, you or I at the age of seven, you know, you're going to have this internet. Um, we'd be thinking, wow, you know, we have pen pals in Africa. Like, we'll understand what it's like to live in Africa. Um, you know, we'll be able to, like, phone our mom and have, like, you know, 4K resolution, resolution phone calls all day long. Like, I'm never going to feel closer to my mother than, than this time in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm going to really understand what it's like to be given. I'm going I'm to be able to read so much that there won't be that many things I'm ignorant about. And actually, we've used it all wrong, really. Um, and I think we've entered this very um, concerning period where technology has always been a force for good. You know, it doesn't always feel like it at the time because we worry about job losses and we worry about a lack of meaning. But every single technology 
kind of without exception, perhaps, I need to think about that, um, has been a force for good, but it normally takes us a while to figure it out. Um, but I'd love us to be a little bit more optimistic about what this technology and human ingenuity can mean. That, that's, that was a, some deep thoughts there, Tom. <laughs> I, had, I had I had some questions to follow up, and I'm like, mate, you just the, the, okay. Oh, yeah, so this idea of the people controlling the the tech, you know, just the owners of big tech companies, you know, the Steve Jobs and whatever, their minds think in a particular yeah. way, and they miss the messiness of humanity. Because even now yeah. when they talk about making technology and AI more empathetic, it's almost like they're talking about it's a problem <laughs> and you have to account yes. for the problem of humanity yes. not being logical. Yeah, and even the way they talk about it, like, and it's a bit like saying, oh, wow, we need our robot to be more arty. It's just like, wait, I mean, do you even know what art is? You know, like <laughs> these people are not sort of experts on sort of liberal arts or or the sort of, you know, the wonder of life. And I think, yeah, they, they, I think they think of everything as being a sort of software solution. Um, you know, every problem in, in sort of mankind is something that with the right patch um, can be solved for. You know, if only there was a way to use technology to, um, you know, predict when you're going to arrive at the hotel and then check you into the hotel automatically. No, you know, from a long flight, um, you want a human. You, you need to sort of be recognized by someone that says, hello, you know, you look tired. Um, let's get you a room quickly. Like, that's what you need. Like, the, the main role that people have um, is to show value to each other and show respect to each other. These are not software problems. Um, you know, by all means, give them software to know when they're going to arrive and, you know, know their name or something, maybe. Um, but most problems in the world, and this is where I get very annoyed with things like blockchain, um, most problems in the world are human problems. You know, they're, they're trust problems, they're systems problems, they're government problems, they're uh, tribe problems. They're not technology problems. I'll ask you about blockchain in a minute. I'm surprised to hear you say that. But first of all, <laughs> uh, with uh, the human interaction, I think you're onto something because my strongest and fondest memories of travel to to Bali or to the United States, I, I can't quite remember the technology I, I experienced in LA, but I do remember a particular human I interacted with. You know, that was profound the way she yeah. did that or terrible the way he did that. Um, can you tell us a story about being in the restaurant recently when you um, pre-pet, yeah? <laughs> I mean, uh, there are times when I, I worry when I post because I must seem quite privileged and, you know, these are sort of first world problems. Um, but it was very significant to me. Um, so about three weeks ago, I've just moved into this apartment um, with my girlfriend and we went out for a meal um, at a local hotel. It was quite a nice restaurant. You know, it's not, um, it's not the sort of place that you would book a month in advance, but it was a, it was a really good place. Um, and we sort of sat at the bar and, you know, the bartender came over and talked to us and we had a nice chat and then a, a waiter sort of walked by and said hello. Um, we got talking to them about the restaurant and why it had been set up and what it, you know, what the dishes were they were most proud of. Um, and they were like, look, you know, the, the menu's on the QR code, but if you want my recommendations, you know, I'd pick this and this. And I went on the QR code and with the website just to check that, you know, it wasn't going to be crazy expensive. Um, but we ordered, food arrived. You know, the people seemed to love working there. Um, it was genuinely, unexpectedly, one of the best meals and the best evenings I'd ever had. Um, and I never go back to the same restaurants. Like, I, I, I hate being someone that um, doesn't sort of explore new things. But because it was so good about three nights ago, uh, we went there again. Uh, the food was amazing. But the main thing was just the feeling. Um, and we got to the bar and the person said, oh, you know, you're back. You know, we've changed how things work here. 
Uh, and I said, oh, how? And they were like, oh, now you do everything you know, through the same QR code that the menu is on. And I was like, all right, you know, can we not just order with you? They said, no, you know, everything has to be done that way. Um, so you go to the QR code, you load up a page, you have to create an account. Um, you then hand sort of give them, uh, you then sort of fill in your credit card details. And then through the same interface, you then look down the menu and you don't just, you know, say what you want to someone. You actually have to sort of press the up button. So you sort of create a basket of food mm. um, and you send it off. You, you pay the money before you get it. Um, and then the staff sort of deliver the food. Um, and the entire spirit of the place was radically different. Like the, the bar person sort of felt like they were out of place. Um, the person bringing us the food, like, didn't really get eye contact. Like, they, they looked like they'd sort of been um, sort of emotionally castrated or something like this. Um, and the whole thing was just completely awkward. Um, you know, I then decided I wanted another drink and the act of sort of logging in and filling in your details and deciding how much to tip, you know, before you even received the drink. Um, and then the strangest thing um, was at the end of the meal, like, there was no sort of ending you know mm. i'm not the most patient person in the world but i realized that when you just finish your food and then you sort of look at each other and go you know should we go now it's um it's a completely sort of empty way to to leave a meal so you end up sort of walking out the restaurant you know saying thank you but the whole spirit the whole thing had changed and um you know i think a bit too much about this stuff but it made me realize you know the people putting into the pasty system i really have no idea like they have, they have no idea of how this changes staff morale. Like they have no idea how much this changes every single thing about the meal. They have no idea how, how sort of pointless and how sort of unpleasant that thing was. And obviously, it's different. Like if you're a hotel, if you're um, like an airline, uh, an yeah. airport lounge or something, if you're um, trying to get your food quickly, at, you know, Terminal Five or something. You're not there to have an experience. Like, you know, mm -hmm. press the buttons and give me the cheeseburger and let's get on the flight. Mm -hmm. But for most normal experiences, you know, one needs to be very thoughtful about the context of that moment. Um, and I think that's what what people in technology don't realize is quite how weird we are. You know, there there are some times where I can look in my cupboards now, in my my kitchen. There'll be a bottle of olive oil that I bought when I didn't need a bottle of olive oil, mm. and it'll be incredibly expensive. And I mm. bought it because I was in some Tuscan town, yes. and some sort of wizened old man on a on a stall sort of spoke to me in in sort of terrible English, and we got chatting about the soil of the area, and they sort of sold me this olive oil. And every time I look at that olive oil, I'm like, ah, oh, it brings back sort of memories of mm. of sort of fields of of olive trees. And then there'll be another little much bigger bottle of olive oil which will be the costco olive oil um yes. probably better to be honest. it's probably you know sourced by really good buyers um it's far far cheaper and i bought that because we we're having a dinner party and i was like i don't think i've got any olive oil bung it in the trolley yeah. and that's the weird thing we buy things in very different we in very different ways for very different reasons and technology can never really deal with that sort of width of input in a way how very human of you I uh I had a <laughs> similar quite dull as well. No, but you, you remind me of a UI. I didn't quite appreciate user interface and user experience um, professionals until I worked at a tech yeah. company. And the way that they think about humanity and where to place buttons and just how being making technology more usable is, is similar to how I read your LinkedIn. Yeah. 
You know, I had a similar experience. I live in the suburbs of Melbourne. So this is not the CBD, right? This, and I just moved even further out. I went to a restaurant, Chinese restaurant. And you, you take your order, you, you put your order in and everything. But so he comes to the table, takes your order and walks away. But then to get the food to you, out comes this robot on wheels. It's a tall, like, <laughs> really? it's a, yeah, <clears throat> Excuse oh, me, with a cat, cat face. It's like a cat. <laughs> and it has a tray like this and it, and it just comes to your table. And it's obviously they've mapped the, the floor and it has obstacle sensing or something. And it comes to your table and then you, you, you know, staff, you have to, it says, please take your food. Please take your food. Please take your food. And until you take the weight, the food off the pressure sensor, please take your food. (laughs) And then you take it, (laughs) you take it off. Um, Anyway, then it goes back. So no staff interaction. Now we, we wanted to order some more drinks or something. So we had to get the waiter over. So he comes over, he takes the order, he goes away. But then to bring our drinks out, the cat gets stuck. There's no one else in the restaurant but it gets stuck halfway between the kitchen and my table. And so we're like, oh, are we allowed to walk over to the cat in the middle of the restaurant and take the drinks or what? (laughs) So the staff member sees it stuck, comes over and is trying to reboot the cat. Like, just give me the drinks. (laughs) And he reboots the cat. It's like a bad sort of comedy, isn't it? It's like a sort of Woody Allen film or something. It's so much fun. And then the cat it works again. So he gets to our table and then we take the drinks up. The staff member's gone, but now the weight pressure sensor's not working. And so it's like, please take your food, even though we've taken the food. So the staff member has to come back over again and reprogram the cat. So I asked him on the way out when we were paying, I said, hey, what's the deal with this cat? Like this is in a suburban Melbourne restaurant. You don't need it. There's no one here. And he is it helping you? He says, no, it takes way longer to use the cat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think, um, I mean, if they did that because it's like a nice little gimmick for Instagram, then great. Like if they're doing that because they're trying to learn from this process and next year the robot's going to be, you know, a million times better, then I can kind of forgive that. But um, for me, it just goes down to like a pervasive lack of thought, you know, mm. like um, it doesn't take that long to think about it. Like, I mean, I, I've now been to that restaurant once and I now know it's a terrible way to do that. You've now been to the, your Chinese restaurant once and you've realised that, that mm. that's never going to work out that well. No. Um, if nothing else, I mean, there's a certain sort of dignity, you know, as a sort of, this makes me sound very old and a little bit sort of lucky, but um, there, there, is a, there is a need to be acknowledged as humans. Um, mm. Every time you phone up a customer call centre and it says, you know, we're unusually busy right now, you know, after a while, you're just like piss off. Like you're not unusually busy. Like you are, you are typically busy. And it's been 15 years. Matter. Yeah. Yeah. You've, it's been you've spent like a hundred million dollars on 12 different ad campaigns over the last 12 years yeah. saying we're here for you. You know, we love to fly. Yeah. We empower our staff to serve people better. And after a while, you're like, you're lying to me. Like you mm-hmm. have no idea what you're doing. Um, and you know, they're all, they're all sort of looking at each other. Um, so the, the problem tends to be that they benchmark themselves against each other and the consultants will go around there saying, you know what, you know, if you, if you implement this technology, you can save 2 million a year. No one's calculating the cost of that. Like no one's, you know, there'll be some NPR, NPS score or something, but no one's saying, you know what, like we're now known as being a really miserable company. Like we now have staff that don't like working for us. Uh, we're now known as being a sort of cost cutter. And that's when a low-cost airline actually gives the same shitty service but genuinely charges lower fees. That's mm. why they win, because you're not mm. getting anything better with anyone else. 
Yeah, I reckon if I went back to my cat restaurant, the cat would be gone as, as a month ago. <laughs> I think they'd they'd be given up so. on that cat. I but, think so. Yeah. Yeah, you make a. I mean, you make a good point. I think um, I'm sick of hearing. Due to COVID nineteen, we're not able to like. That's just the catch all. They're just making these statements that we're we're seeing through now. But I've got to ask you about yeah. blockchain. You said, yeah, uh, you think that you don't like parts of the blockchain because it's dehumanizing people. It's not solving human problems. But my core understanding, not not the layer three for you know the crazier blockchain and there's a lot of scams and stuff. But at its core, you know, layer one and two and the sense of solving the problem of trust in currency and the original concept of Bitcoin, which will hopefully emerge over time as we we get through the speculation. Um, how is how is crypto not a great um, way to rediscover humanity? What is your problem with it? I don't know how long we have. Um, <clears throat> well, let, let's focus on blockchain itself. Um, I mean, first of all, um, a lot of the people in this space will say, you know, we need trusted systems. Um, that's definitely true. It's amazing how much business is done with trust, actually. I think I don't think we realize that, um, you know, especially in parts of Asia, um, mm. a lot of business agreements are done with shaking hands. Um, you know, I now rent out an apartment Airbnb. Uh, I do so because I trust people to take care of it. Um, you get in a stranger's car on Uber because you trust that there's a system in place. Um, I didn't need an advanced protocol um, using sort of... Uh, extraordinarily complex computing power to solve problems to trust the Uber driver. Um, I kind of looked into their eyes. I kind of presumed that if there were big problems, um, some other system would have done that. So we already operate in a system of quite high trust. And in a way, as a species, that's probably about the only reason we are where we are is probably because we learn to trust and communicate with each other. Um, second of all, almost all of the problems exist between the systems and people. Um, so in the world of crypto, um, you know, the reasons why underbanked or unbanked people um, are not taken care of is because no one can make any money from them. And a new technology that's less efficient is not going to improve the business model of banking such that they care about people without much money. Like that's just the commercial reality of business. Mm. Um, people put forward ideas like um, you know, property titles. One of the use cases I got very excited about early on um, was how you could secure property titles in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Because actually, if you can own a property, it makes a huge difference to the economy. Like when people yeah. have um, a, a vestment um, of that nature, they can borrow against it, which suddenly liberates huge amounts of money for the economy. And I spoke to quite a few people who were putting this forward as a proposal, who knew blockchain, and they said it was amazing. Um, and then I spoke to a couple of people I knew who worked in governments in these countries, and I said, um, is this going to help? And they said, no. You know, the reasons we don't have titles is because we don't really know who owns the land. We don't really have land boundaries that people agree on. Um, you know, we will have an office where people assign titles, but actually it's all based on very complicated histories and massive amounts of disputes. And if you have a sort of certificate that basically says, I own this land, mm -hmm. and that becomes digital and secure, that doesn't solve the problem. The problem is that when you go, I own this land, someone with an AK-47 says, no, you don't. Um, and blockchain doesn't really help people that might shoot you in the head. And it doesn't really help people who you know, live in war-torn republics where 
entire new regimes will come in and say, you know, we own all this now. Um, you know, you look at things like coffee, um, people talking about how blockchain could establish the provenance of coffee. Um, I would guess that every person that's ever said this will help us with the provenance of coffee has never once been to somewhere where they actually package the coffee. Because if you go, I haven't done this, but um, I presume if you go to some high up Peruvian um, rainforest and looking at the people putting the coffee beans into the containers, um, that's where the problem will be. It's not going to be that they lost tracking of it. It's going to be that people will lie or people will sort of for, uh, forge things and so forth. So I, I may have fallen for the, uh, I don't know what you call it, but the <laughs> dream that blockchains will solve debanked and unbanked people, but there's probably problems behind why they're unbanked in the first place. I think um, I, I'm, I'm really not being miserable. I think um, I look at the world and I see technology as a sort of a proliferation of amazing tools. Um, but the most important thing we do, and this is extremely cliched, is we don't go around looking at the toolbox going, oh, I've got a spirit level. You know, where, what, should I, what should I make level? You know, you don't pick up a sort of screwdriver yeah. and go, imagine what I can do with this screwdriver. Like I can, yeah. I can make a chair. Uh, you walk into a living room and you go, you know what? Like um, I need to hang the TV. Um, and then you figure out the best tools for that. Occasionally, like very occasionally, you get a technology which is so profound that it is, you know, like a can of spray paint where you suddenly think, wait a minute, like I didn't dream I could make this thing happen. Yes. Um, you know, the internet, the internet has been that. Um, to some extent, the smartphone has been that. So it's now possible with the smartphone to go, wait a minute, I've got a GPS chip, I've got 4G internet, I've got um, a camera, I've got a calendar, I've got a contact book. You know, what can I do with this? Like, it is possible with a smartphone to go to any industry on the planet, you know, go to primary healthcare and go, right, what does the smartphone mean for this? Go to car maintenance, what does the smartphone mean for this? So occasionally you get a technology that is that profound. Um, but it's very unusual. Like, if you go to most things and go, um, you know, what does a camera mean for this? Like, normally it's not that exciting. If you go, what does... Um, a spreadsheet mean for this industry we're already using them um so generally speaking it's much better to work around problems okay all right hey uh can i ask about what you raised earlier on um the most the biggest problem you see is the, is the world's the way it consumes media how media is created what, and, and so on so tw Twitter uh, purchased by Elon Musk, right? So I flagged this yeah. with you when we spoke a month ago when I postponed our interview. Uh, he, what do you make of these sorts of of moves? Because I guess with your understanding of of tech and and there was some there was some conjecture over starting new platforms like Trump did with True Social, and then you got Elon going, no, no, I want to go now, and he claims he wants to rescue Twitter because he thinks it needs uh, rescuing in terms of free speech. Uh, how should we think about these moves and, and what do you think is coming for uh, the tech media interplay? Hmm. Um, Elon's a very divisive character and um, I'm not someone who's enamored with him. You know, hmm. they're, they're, because of the, ironically, because of the nature of the internet, you get lots of people who think he can do no wrong yes. and you get people who seem to think he's the sort of devil incarnate. Um, I tend to think he's a normal human being that does some really amazing things and messes some things up and he's prone to errors and um, characteristics that make us imperfect. But I think, generally speaking, he's a good guy. Um, 
I think it's something that he did for two reasons. I think one is he has an enormous ego. Um, his behaviour on Twitter recently shows that he is every bit as, well, even more prone to wanting attention than most people. Um, and it's quite amazing, actually. There are lots of times I'm, I'm supposed to be focused really hard on my job and I'll be on Twitter for ages and I'll say things to get a little bit noticed. And I look at myself and I think, oh my God, why am I doing this? I'm being an idiot. Like, why do I care about getting a few likes? So to see someone like Elon Musk, who has enough money that he could do whatever he wanted all day, every day um, for the rest of his life, um, to see that he is drawn to the same uh, need to get noticed um, is quite a big statement, actually. Like more people should be aware that even the richest guy on the planet who's a bit autistic, um, he's addicted to social media. Um, but anyway, so I think one is his ego. Two, I think genuinely, I think he recognizes that this is the public um, square of today. And he recognizes that the sort of the, if the public square was uh, of Twitter was in real life, it would be carnage. And there would be people sort of hiding in various corners, you know, throwing stones at each other. Uh, running away and towards each other. It would be a mess. I, I think he genuinely thinks that um, the software can be used um, to disarm a lot of that behavior and to bring a more nuanced and thoughtful forum. And I think he's right. <clears throat> how, how can you call Twitter the uh, town square when it's got, what, 300 million Let's assume that 20% are fake, right? So it's got 200 and something million yeah. users. What about Instagram and Facebook? I've never understood why Twitter, because I, I face this problem in Australia. The journalists and, and the politicians, the people who kind of have a great effect on their lives, they think whatever happens on Twitter represents the population. But I talk to so many people on, on in my work and it's just not. like I just got on Twitter about yeah. three months ago and my God, that is not real. It, the, the conversations, yeah. the tone, it is so disconnected from everyday life on Facebook and Instagram, which are also disconnected <laughs> from real life. So what is this idea about yeah. Twitter being the public square? I don't agree. Uh, I mean, no, you're kind of right. Um, I mean, two things. One is, um, yeah, I mean, Twitter is kind of irrelevant in theory. Um, one is not many people go on it. Two is not many people say anything. You know, it's a very small number of people that actually say that much. Um, the people that are on it are quite weird, myself included. And this small number of weird people on it are actually behaving quite strangely. You know, actually, if you to, sometimes people do this, actually. Sometimes before I go on stage at an event, someone will read out my tweets. And I think, oh, shit, like, um, I don't really think that. Like, um, I'm not sure what I was doing that day, you know, because that's not really how I, I think. And you realize there's something about it where it becomes quite performative. Um, it, you, you use it to sort of grandstand. And actually, it's the opposite to what we need. But we need way more listening in the world. Um, so one is it's definitely not representative of any form of reality. And the more time people spend on Twitter, the more they are removed from quite how wonderful the world is and each other are. You know, if you spend time on Twitter, you're obsessed with the idea that no one's having because of climate change. And um, you're obsessed with the idea that every war that's going on now is worse than any other war that's ever existed. Um, you're obsessed with this idea that anyone that voted differently to you is a complete arsehole in every single way. And it's just not true. Um, but the thing that is interesting about Twitter, and I think it's wrong that this has happened, 
Um, but about five years ago, the media started reporting on what people said on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I think Trump was probably the first person where it'd be like, oh, look, you know, there's going to be a war in Iran because Trump, Trump said this on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, because the media seems to be so lacking in funds and so driven to sensationalize stuff, like mm -hmm. the media quite often these days is just here, a, you know, item one, this person tweeted this. Um, item three, you know, this thing's got worse because this person's tweeted this. So it ends up becoming part of the, the conversation. And now we see that politicians in particular and CEOs have got used to using Twitter as their sort of spokes uh, place. You know, the war in uh, Russia and Ukraine is basically a war between people using social media to make whatever points they would like that are helpful to them. Um, so I think it, you're right in that it's not that important, but I think it is more important because of the way that people are using it. Yeah, fair call, fair call. It shouldn't be, but it is. Hey, uh, all right, let's yeah, end our yeah. conversation with a nice, nice juicy question. I'm curious. <laughs> Actually, I have a couple of hypotheticals I'll throw at you at the end, but I want to just get okay. your view on this three graphs you've put on of overcorrected normals and, and what does a real catalyzed oh, yeah. new normal look like? I'll put it on the screen now. So yeah. where, where do you see now that we're all kind of coming out of the cave of COVID-19 and lockdowns? I mean, you guys didn't really go in in Florida, but the rest of us Not are coming yet. out going, oh, the blinding sun. Uh, what are we going, what is going to stick? Like, can you give us some, uh, some, some predictions and, and what is going to be a real new normal? So on this graph, you know, you've said things like yeah. toilet roll and home gyms and, and <laughs> yeast. I don't know why I said yeast is part of an overcorrected normal. And then you've said cruises, well, eating out, that's yeah, returned mean, to a new normal. And uh, then you've got catalyzed. I, I made these, um, I made these charts, I think in April, 2020, um, so the yeast thing was there was this real run on stores just as they were closing where people were buying yeast um, so they could make their own bread. Um, so, yeah, this looked quite sort of uh, strange in, in retrospect. But at the time, everyone was buying yeast. Everyone was buying toilet rolls, which actually happened in Australia quite a few times. Mm -hmm. um, no, I think, um, yeah, so these, these were sort of predictions. And actually, I think they've been quite good. Um, and it's bizarre to me that, that people are still getting this wrong. I mean, there's a huge problem with retailers in the US right now where they all ordered huge amounts of leisure wear, you know, because they presumed that in June 2022, people would be like, oh, shit, I'm working from home. I don't have any clothes. You know, let me buy some more pajamas. Um, it's quite how, quite ludicrous how, how short-sighted these companies can be. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, in a simplistic way, I think nothing will change at all. Um, and I promise you that's not me being lazy. And I promise you that's not me being um, curmudgeonly or unimaginative. I just see, um, you know, I really do believe we live in paradigms. And the working from work paradigm was a paradigm that people went into. And one would wake up and get the train to work and you would be out of the house all day. Um, you know, in America, you might drive your kids to uh, gymnastics after school. And when they were doing gymnastics, you would go to a store and pick up your weekly shop. Um, and the paradigm of working from home was a, a sort of system that made complete sense. Uh, sorry, the paradigm for working from the office was a sort of system that made complete sense. And then when we worked from home and we were forced to, um, you can go to a store and you were at home all day. So obviously, e-commerce made a lot of sense because you were at home to take the delivery 
and it was the only way you were going to eat. Um, but the more we see elements of life return to sort of normal, um, the more we realize that that paradigm is something that we created because on mass, it kind of made sense. It doesn't work perfectly for everybody. It's not particularly logical for everybody. But we didn't create that because we didn't know that Zoom existed. You know, when the pandemic hit and we all worked from home, you know, no one sort of went to their computer and they were like, what? Like, there's a camera up here? Like, everyone, yeah. <laughs> right? There's, like, Wi-Fi? Like, where these microphones you can hear? Like, everyone knew the video calls were possible, mm. but everyone thought they weren't that good. Um, mm. Everyone thought that if they did a video call, um, that there would be a meeting after the meeting where people would gossip about you and say that your third idea wasn't that good and we should choose the first one after all. Um, everyone knew that if you did work from home, you'd find out one day that, you know, the the girl that seems very confident, you know, has got a pay rise and you're thinking, wait a minute, like what happened here? You know, I think she went to the office more than me. Um, like we, we are human beings and we're prone to envy. We're prone to... Um, to jealousy and to slight distrust. We're prone to tribalism, to gossip. Um, and the office was not the perfect way to work, but it was a system that we chose. Um, and I think, you know, we will see in about five years' time where this nets out, but I think by and large will be surprisingly close to normal. I think it's, mm. it's much more likely that there are a handful of sectors. If you make software, um, you don't really need, you know, high fives you don't really need um a bell in the corner of the room to go great john you know well done sally you've just written some code um so there'll be sectors like software engineering where people have already been working remotely um and where people will carry on doing that um there'll be sectors like advertising and brand consulting where i think you know perhaps we'll see it be more formal that people worked four days a week from an office and they have a sort of admin day um, you know, when I worked for large global agencies for the last sort of five years, actually in the global headquarters I worked from, on any given day, about half the people weren't there anyway. You know, people would be off speaking at a conference in Thailand and so-and-so would be at the Nestle conference in the south of France. And, you know, Jeff always went to the client site on a Tuesday anyway. Um, so I think we'll see a little bit more working from home. But if you work in a local council, um, if you work sort of processing passports for the government, if you work in a chicken factory, if you work as a nurse, as a lorry driver, as a teacher, um, as a lawyer, as an architect, as a construction worker, as a road maintenance worker, as a health and safety um, laboratory technician, like you're probably going to be doing things very similarly. Fair call. You know what is going to change and has changed those is perceptions what we've all been through this mass trauma event yeah. whether you liked it or not it, it's it's affected us because i i the work from home thing <clears throat> i just don't understand if you zoom out as an alien looking on the planet you've got a bunch of of monkeys walking around sitting in front of these <laughs> screens doing this all day yes. it's not actually create I, the jobs you just mentioned actually creating value I understand you know, I'm yeah. doing the same thing right now in front of a computer and I believe I'm creating value, but, <laughs> but, but by and large, we're just sitting in front of these and we're pushing electrons around and it just seems so fake to me. I'm like, why do we work at all? Am I having these existential issues? So oh, think- um, it's, it's very interesting, actually. Um, one of the fascinating things about the pandemic has been the degree to which it lasted a different length of time in different places mm-hmm. um, and the 
severity of it. Um, and therefore, we've all been through a traumatic event, but it was very different for different people. And people's socioeconomic conditions also had a huge impact on it. Um, you know, if you're a farmer in Montana, um, you probably can't remember this happening. Mm. Um, so um, there was a stage about a year ago where I suddenly thought, I was doing quite a lot of virtual presentations and you'd, you'd finish the presentation and you'd sort of, you know, you'd get like a, a few sort of emoticon claps and then you'd close the presentation and you'd think, you know, was that real? Like, <laughs> you know, how do I know that my Wi-Fi didn't just sort of collapse, yep. you know, three yep. minutes in? Like actually, it, it was almost a bit like a, a really boring version of SimCity or something, mm-hmm. you know, sim work. You know, and I think, um, you know, maybe I was a bit tired or being a bit strange, but at some point I thought, actually, like, is this even happening? Like, are these in emails? Like, how do I know this person's like a real person? Like, maybe this is just like a, a robot, like sending out work emails and I'm sort of replying to it. Yeah. It all felt very, you know, virtual with a capital V. Um, and I'm not particularly extroverted. Like, I don't really like um, small talk. I was not a person that loved the office more than anybody else but i have come to realize that actually having boundaries is quite good um every important conversation i ever had to do with my career happened when i would say to someone um you know roberta like um have you got a few minutes um and you would be able to pick the time you know you'd see that they were running around all day you know you'd realize that you needed to have the conversation soon you'd see that they had a moment where they just joked with someone and you'd pick that time and say you know what like i'm having trouble with my colleague or um i think i should get a pay rise um everything that was important happened in those very sort of rich specific contexts Uh, i also realized i learned huge amounts um by being in meetings um, I got an overwhelming sense of what other people did by open plan offices. Um, you would just overhear conversations. You sort of hear cheers in another department. You'd see the pitch team coming back from a meeting, um, you know, looking miserable. You, you sort of ingest so much stuff in these very rich ways. Um, and this is not to say that we should return to the office, you know, nine till six, and we should have formal policies. Um, but it's to recognise that there is something, there is something great about an office and there's something great about each other. Um, I keep on seeing these people. I, I go to New York sometimes and the streets at the weekends are absolutely packed with people um, and the bars in the evenings are packed with people. Um, and in the middle of the day, it's deserted. Um, and I don't know whether you or your, your viewers have been to New York that much, but the average apartment that people live in in Manhattan is, um, is pretty shitty. You know, the, the reality of people working in small studio apartments in Manhattan is not a particularly great reality. And for some reason, I, I don't understand this at all, for some reason, people with the shortest commutes in the world and the smallest apartments in the world um, and probably work in some of the nicest offices in the world with some of the most interesting other people in the world. Somehow like, everyone's celebrating how great it is that people are spending their whole day doing this. You know, rather than being on the, you know, 41st floor of the Chrysler building, mm. you know, working on a advertising campaign with really, really interesting people with an amazing view of New York. I, I'm not sure what's going on. Hey, Tom, uh, let me give you a couple of hypotheticals and then let's um, let's wrap up. Hey, if if I give you a magic wand, uh, how would you fix the entire world? Um, 
I think I would figure out a way to um, monetize the internet, not through advertising. Oh, that's so good. So really change the incentive structures for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I presume the magic wand only does one thing. Um, yes. But if it does two, it would be uh, to sort of create a culture that really celebrates tolerance and um, efforts to understand each other. Um, I'm staggered these days uh, how proud people are to show their intolerance. Um, and it's really weird for me. Uh, my politics naturally are, are quite left wing. Um, and I always grew up to be very tolerant because everyone's different and they've all got good intentions and people end up in very different situations and somehow people that are broadly speaking on my sort of side um now seem to be less tolerant than anyone it's bizarre aren't, aren't we in the middle of uh, global pride month aren't we aren't we as a society as a, as a race going well i'm being told we're going more towards tolerance with things like this um there are specific things it's become fashionable to be tolerant about, often for small amounts of time, uh, prescribed by other people. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm very strange. I'm just tolerant of everyone. Like I, It's not really that interesting to me um, how you choose to live your life as long as it doesn't affect me. And to some extent, I mean, there's an interesting thing about... Um, uh, the degree to which you care about things versus are ambivalent to things versus have an informed um, sort of acceptance. I, I don't know. I tend to just think everyone's great. I don't need to think that specific people are. How human of you. I've said that a few times to you. Hey, <laughs> I've been thinking about this hypothetical because I heard it from Lex Friedman on his excellent podcast. He asked a lot of guesses. Mm. He, 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 he wonders what, you would do if you woke up tomorrow and and everyone was gone so you, you everyone's disappeared you're the only human and i've it's quite a horrific it's been quite a dystopian um hypothetical for me personally anyway uh yeah wondering what would you do with your life tomorrow morning if there were no humans what does it all mean if there are no other humans I mean, it's a horrible idea isn't it um and it's something that i came closer to i mean i, I lived in new york when the pandemic hit because the streets are empty, uh, I couldn't really cope with it because uh, to see people, again, I'm, I'm not very extroverted at all, but there's an energy you get from people. Like it's yes. great to see people smiling. I mean, so I think in, uh, my immediate impression would be that everything would be so pointless um, that I would probably just wallow in a mess for days thinking, oh my God, um, nothing means anything anymore. Um, Maybe after I'd go over that, I'd probably try and build things out of wood. I, I really like making things. I, I trained to be an architect. So I'd probably just go to like a rainforest and start hacking yeah. down trees and make shelters. Not because I needed them, but because it'd be a good thing to do. Okay. Don't injure yourself. There's no ambulance coming. But isn't that a, fun, <laughs> isn't that a funny thought when you, you, we both said that would be yeah. a horrific reality, but all of our problems and our wars and our problems with each other and our frustrations is all because of that person or that group did this. And now we're yeah. saying if you remove the people in the groups, that would not be a life very worth living either. I think um, this is going to sound like I've thought about it more than I have, but I think everything in life really is about relativity. Um, mm. I was working for a cosmetic surgery company a, a bit ago, and I thought, you know what, if, if everyone is beautiful, then no one's beautiful, really. Mm. Like, um, let's imagine we all, we all get 3D printed, not to be the same, but to be 
you know, slightly differently perfect. Mm-hmm. In that world, like beauty doesn't really mean anything. Um, true. Whenever you fly first class, um, you know, people sort of walk through your cabin. You know, you get to board first, then people walk in. And you always see like kids go, oh my God, this is amazing. And then they carry on a bit further on and they go, oh, okay, we don't have seats like this. I think in a way part of the promise of business class is that they treat people quite shit. Yeah. Um, apart from you, you know. It's so true. <laughs> like, um, I, I, this is a, completely a joke, but I remember a while ago thinking, you know, Ryanair or, or sort of Jetstar, you know, should really have a fare called, you know, ultra low, where you just get like slapped. You know, you walk up there and you get slapped. And then you have to pay like $20 extra not to get slapped. And then people would do that and they'd be like, well, this is amazing. You don't get slapped. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good value. How's your flight? Follow on. How you, yeah, how was your flight? I was, well, I was late, but I didn't get slapped. Um, yeah, so I think every, everything is about sort of relativity. And in a way, if you sort of live in this sort of vacuum removed from human um, judgment and acceptance and support and laughter, then everything's sort of pointless. Yeah, okay. I think uh, in the words of Jordan Peterson, we're all um, mobsters and we all love hierarchies. So bring on the hierarchy. Now I'm, I'm just yeah, being, I'm I'm butchering him. Hey, Tom, thank you for a cool yeah. conversation. Thank you for the work you no, do on LinkedIn. Cool. Can you please tell people where people can follow your work? Is LinkedIn the primary way or do you have books that you've written or can they hire you oh, to yeah. speak? Actually, for the first time ever, I'm gonna. This is a book I've just written. It's a second version, but a completely redone oh. version of my book. So it's the yellow cover. And I, I read it the other day, actually, because I wrote it a while ago in the pandemic. Uh, it's quite good. Like, honestly, I think it's quite good. Um, so that's my book. And also on LinkedIn, I think I'm Tom F. Goodwin on LinkedIn or Tom F. Goodwin on Twitter as well. Okay. Uh, can you just give me a, a sentence on that book? Like, what is digital Darwinism about? Um, it's trying to sort of understand what's really going on in the world, um, mm-hmm. how technology is changing um, certain businesses and trying to give advice for companies and for leaders um, on what they can do about new technology. Um, I wrote an earlier version of this book, which was full of questions and it was full of um, thoughtfulness. Um, And then this is a completely redone second one where I actually start to give people actions they can take. You know, so if you run a healthcare service, a car company, a retailer, you know, what should you be doing? Wow, super helpful. Yeah, you could have read that book instead of watching this interview, but thank you for watching this uh, chat with uh, Discernible and uh, Tom Goodwin. All the links to what we've described, book and follows, are in the description. If you'd like to support us, the best way is to come and chat with me in our private community at discernible.locals.com where we have picnics and barbecues and all sorts of hangouts. Thank you, Tom, for joining us. I'll speak to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks, man.